We go back tonight to the book of Haggai. And the last time that we were here, uh, we introduced the book and we started looking at chapter 1 in the first part of that first message that Haggai uh, was giving to God's people. And so we're going to go back tonight to chapter 1. We're going to finish out the chapter looking at the rest of the message that Haggai gave to the people and then the response that they gave to God for that message. Um, And last time what we looked at, we saw that uh, the people had no time for God. They had a bunch of things they, they wanted to do and a bunch of things they sought to do in the land as they had returned from captivity, but they had put off Uh, serving the Lord. They had put off following through with building the temple as he had commanded them to. And a few months back, um, in our Sunday evening series uh, that we, as we worked through this idea of bless this home and and God's view on our homes, we gave in a Sunday evening service a biblical definition of obedience. And we defined obedience as something that's done quickly sweetly and completely. And this is the definition that I told you then, I'll tell you again, it's common in our home. You can talk to our kids who are here tonight. I mean, they can tell you that's what obedience, that's how we're supposed to obey God. And that definition of obedience applies not just to children with their parents, but also to all of us and how we are to respond to God in our lives. When God calls on us to obey him, we are to respond right away with the right heart attitude, and we're to do what he calls us to do all the way, completely. And last time, we saw this message of God through Haggai to his people. They had failed to prioritize obeying him, and they had paid a hefty price for their failure to obey God. And so God now continues to call for their obedience, and and we see that response. And what we see uh, in this chapter as we look at this idea that, that the time is now. The time to obey God has come. The time for us to do uh, what he has called us to do, it it isn't tomorrow, it isn't when we have time, but it's, it's right away. And what we see in this chapter is that the correct way to respond to God's conviction is through immediate, repentant obedience. When God comes to us, when God uses his word in our hearts and lives, whether it be in our own personal devotions, uh, in a message, in a conversation with somebody, when God uses his word to speak to our hearts and shows us that what we are doing is wrong and this is what we need to do and this is how we need to to make it right, the, the only correct response to that is immediate repentant obedience. And we see that here called for uh, through Haggai as he comes to the people and continues to preach the message of God. And so let's pick up, um, actually, let's go back and, and we'll recover where we left off last time and then we'll continue on. So in the book of Haggai chapter one, we read in the second year of King Darius in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat 
but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but none is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. So God has, has exposed the excuse that his people have given. The time hasn't come, they said, to build God's house. Well, the time had come for them to take care of their own homes. The time had come to make sure they planted their own crops and took care of their own families and tried to get ahead in life. And God says, because that's where you place your priority, this is, these are the consequences you've experienced. You've experienced that you can't get enough. You've experienced that you don't have what you need. And so now Haggai continues with this message in verses 7 through 11 uh, with a call to action. And what he seeks to do first through, through God's, and again, remember Haggai is God's messenger here, is, he, is we see God's reenlistment of them in, this, in these two verses, in verses 7 and 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. So here's this phrase again, consider your ways. Um, that God is calling on them. He said it earlier to think about. Think about what's going on. Take a step back. Look at what's going on in your life. Looking at, look at what God uh, has done in your life. Look how you can't gain traction when you've disobeyed him. So, so again, I want you to consider where you are in your life and consider obeying God. We have to understand that God is a God of justice, Right? That God, because he is a God of justice, always keeps his promises in regard to justice. We looked at that a little bit last time. Uh, What are the things that God told his people when they came to the promised land? He gave them blessings and curses. He said, if you obey me, right, I'll take care of you. This is what's going to happen. But if you disobey, what's going to happen? Well, exactly what had happened in their lives. And they had come to the point of such disobedience that God had sent the people into exile and now they've come back, and they've continued to disobey God, and so they're struggling. They can't make ends meet. Why? Because this is what God said would happen. God is a God of justice who keeps his promises. And these promises regard also the, you know, they, keep, they, respond, they regard the disciplinary action of those who disobey. However, God is not only a God of justice, but he is also a God of mercy and grace. And he gives his people an opportunity to come back and obey him. Did you notice that the turn this takes in verse 8, where he tells his people to go up to the mountains and bring wood to build the temple? Understand this that when God convicts you of sin, God does not convict you and I of sin so that we may throw a pity party and wallow in our conviction and our sin. Nor is it right for us then when we feel the conviction of God in our life to, con- to try to fill our life with noise so that we may drown out that conviction. I mean, these are sometimes the responses we have. God convicts us of sin and we sit around, oh, woe is me, I'm such a horrible person. God doesn't love me. He convicted me of sin. I'm just awful. How can I ever be used by God? Or the other response we take is we just try to fill our lives with so many things that we don't hear what God is trying to tell us. We try to block it out. Can you think of somebody in the Bible whom God told to do something, they knew it was wrong, but they continued to run away and try to block it out? Yeah, his name is Jonah, right? 
What does God convict us of sin for? He convicts us so that he may call us back to himself in obedience. That's the purpose of conviction in our lives, to show us where we're wrong so we can return to him. And so we should be thankful for the gracious conviction of sin that God brings into our lives. Because without it, we could continue on blindly in our sin to our own ruin, could we not? Just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. Which is the definition of what? Of insanity, right? Do the same thing over and over again, expect different results. So once again, as we said, Haggai then calls for the people to consider your ways. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the great God of strength, calls for them to evaluate their lives and to evaluate their experiences. He's told them in verse 6, here's what you've done, here's what you've experienced. Now consider that. And come back to me. He was calling them to action as seen in verse 8. What does he tell them to do? He goes out, tells them to go out and gather wood for the rebuilding of the temple. Now, I want to show you something very interesting. In Ezra chapter 3, in verse 7, we have recorded. They also gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring what? Cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. I have a question for you. What happened to all that wood that they were supposed to use to rebuild the temple? Right? I mean, it's been 16 years ago since they they had all this permission, they had all these funds from Cyrus to bring all of this wood that they would need to fulfill what, what they were supposed to do. Now, I suppose it's possible that during the foundation, the laying of the foundation of the temple, that they used it all up, right? But is it also quite possible it could have been used for other purposes? I mean, what did all these people spend the last 16 years working on? Their homes. So knowing the history of Israel and knowing the tendencies of mankind, I would ask you this. Is it really impossible to think that they kept purloining the wood until the pile of wood was gone? And all the wood they were supposed to spend on the house of God, that supply has been dwindled and used for their own purposes. So therefore, the call of the people in verse 8 for them to begin to gather the material needed for the temple's reconstruction is a call for their repentance. Because in so doing, they are going to have to agree with God that this is what we should have done with this. And so now we have to rectify the situation, right? We have to repent. We have to turn from where we, what we were doing and now do what God has called us to do. And that means we're going to have to go back out. And we're going to have to find all the materials that we need in order to do the job. The true nature and the true measure of our repentance is seen in the actions that we take after such confession of sin. That, that tells you whether or not someone is truly repentant or not. It's one thing to confess and say you've done something wrong, but if we don't alter our behavior, the question has to be asked, have we truly repented from our sin? The husband or wife who identifies a sin, maybe that of short-temperedness or self-focus, but fails to alter their behavior, isn't looking to change. They just want to undo some of the temporary consequences they brought into their life when they sinned. 
Children who apologize to one another or to their parents only to renew the same squabbles or fall right back into the same disrespectful behaviors aren't looking to change. They just wanted to get back to their own ways and wanted mom and dad off their back for a little bit so they can do what they want to do. The guilt-ridden individual who espouses profuse words to God saying, God, I'm so sorry for doing this sin or so sorry for indulging in this vice. But once again, just to keep plunging themselves right back into it, they're not looking for godliness. They're just looking for some shred of feeling amongst the guilt that weighs on their heart. Because true godly repentance leads to transformed godly actions. That's the nature of repentance. I am going this way, and it is wrong. To repent means to turn around and go the other way. It doesn't mean that I turn around and wait till no one's looking, and I turn back and I keep going, right? That's not repentance. Those are vain, empty words. Now, it doesn't mean instant perfection. But it does lead to obedience, And you and I, just like the children of Israel, cannot live in obedience to God unless we repent or turn from that which is wrong. Obedience to God, as we're going, say we're going along, we're doing something wrong. Obedience to God isn't something we pick up along the way and say, well, I'm going to obey while I keep doing what is wrong, right? No, obedience to God means we're going this way and we realize that we need to be going that way. And so we have to change, we have to alter our our behavior, One pastor said it this way, repentance is a turning of the heart that leads to a turning of the behavior. It alters our lives. God calls his people here in Haggai to turn from disobedience and to turn from excuses and self-service and instead to turn to action, embracement, and kingdom work. And God promises that if they will do this, He will be with them. He continues, we read in verse 8, Go and bring wood and build the temple, that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. He called for the temple to be rebuilt. Why? That he may take pleasure in it and that he may be glorified by it. You know what this suggests? This suggests God's returning presence to the temple. This would mean that he is delighting in his people once again. This means that they would be lifting him up. The greatest calling on the life of every follower of God is the glorification of God. And we glorify God how? By obeying him. By following him. And when we obey God, we hold him up for others to see. And you realize that that even simple things, such as talking about God and what he's done in your life to other people, brings glory to him? Can I just share a personal illustration with you? I I hate doing this because I I feel like you're going to think the pastor thinks he's the hero of all his situations, okay? But this is the only way I can think to illustrate this because it just happened to me last week. Um, I have this... Um, addiction, hobby, um, buying things sometimes off of Facebook Marketplace, okay? You ever do that? You ever buy things off Facebook Marketplace, right? Um, and those can go one of two ways. They're either really good or really bad. Let's just, that's what it is. But I went down uh, towards Midland last week uh, to buy something we, we needed, and um, I met this guy who was a super nice guy, and we got talking, right? He wanted to know where I was from and all these things, you know, all the things you talk about. 
And I got the reaction out of him that I get from a lot of people uh, when they find out I'm a pastor and I moved here from Georgia. And they say the same thing. How'd you get to Michigan from Georgia? Right? What are you doing here? And there's a lot of things you can say in that situation, right? When you're, when you're making conversation. Um, you can say, well, you know, there was this agency and they connected to us to this church or, well, you know, that's a really crazy story or, or something like that. You can just kind of say things, you know, and I've said different things over the years. But recently, God's just impressed on my heart more and more. Just, I mean, just be, just see what happens. Just be straight up with those people, right? I'm like, well, you know, the Lord, God, he just really worked it out. And they cut, most of the time they go, oh, that's great. You know, they just keep going, right? They don't want to have that conversation. But I've just been convicted in my own heart and life. This is a chance for me to glorify God to someone I don't know if they know the Lord or not. Now, let me ask you this. When something like that, does God use human means to connect us together? Well, yeah, sure he does. But at the end of the day, who is it that does the work? It's God. And so in our lives, we're just going through our lives and people talk to us. Hey, what'd you do on Sunday? Oh man, we went to church and let me tell you what God taught me from the word of God. Or, you know, hey, how'd that happen or that happen? Well, let me tell you, God did this and God did that. And you're talking to people who have no concept of God or they don't really think about God in their lives. And all of a sudden, what are you doing? Are you, are you holier than thou? No, you're just telling them, this is, this is who God is. This is what God does. And you're glorifying God to other people by just expressing who, what God has done. Because everything in our lives is ultimately his work. And we should not be afraid to tell others what God has done for us, even if they look at you and go, that's great, and they just keep moving on, right? The people of Jerusalem were called to come back to God's work so that they may glorify him in what they did. And God, takes, or God promises to take pleasure in their obedience. And again, this reminds us of something, that God delights in his people's service. God delights in our obedience to him. God longs to see his people. He gives blessing to those who follow him. And that blessing isn't a promise of health, wealth, and a condo on the beach. That blessing is the promise of a right relationship with him. And he is the God who not only blesses, but also withholds blessing, which Haggai continues to remind the people of once again. Not only do we see God's reenlistment of the people, but we see God's reminder to his people that he is the one in control. In verses 9 through 11. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. So verses 9 through 11 really recapitulate what Haggai shared in verse 6. And here, Haggai is highlighting now God's control over everything that happened. What does he say? Well, the people looked for much. What does that mean, they looked for much? It means they invested long, hard hours into their fields and work. People didn't slack off. They were trying to to get ahead. They poured in all kinds of incredible efforts 
but they received little return on investment. Compared to what they put in and compared to what they expected, they received meager returns. Why? Because of what God did. And the little they brought in, God says, I blew it away. God was responsible for the depletion of their resources and the disappointment of their pursuits. He shows once again he is in control. You know, this time of year, we start riding around, you know, you go different places, and you see field after field after field, right, that's been plowed or, or planted or whatever, whatever pro- point in the process they're in. But have you and I, no- you notice like me, what we don't have a lot of these days? We don't have a lot of rain, right? And if we don't get a lot of rain, how's the rest of the summer in those fields going to go? They're not going to go well. And can we control that? We can't. God's the one in control. He's the one who oversees that. And here, God tells them, I'm in control. And I have disappointed you. I have brought meager returns on your investment because you have misplaced priorities and you've disobeyed me. God says, I blew it away. Why? Because of my house that is in ruins. Notice, while every one of you runs to his own house. You took care of yourselves, but you failed to obey me. And so therefore, you've experienced these things. When God's people try to live a life of obedience to God, or sorry, of disobedience to God, it doesn't go well. That's my way, my clunky way of saying what Charles Spurgeon said, God does not allow his people to sin successfully. God is in control, and so what does he do? He restricts the flow of blessings to their lives. The people experience drought, and therefore the earth did not give them the crops they sought, and God designed this specifically for his people. Do you notice how specific God is to get their attention and to seek their recommitment? And to, He was seeking their allegiance and their obedience, and he would do whatever it took to get their attention off of themselves and their own pursuits and to change that attention back on him and their obedience to his calling. The people were focused on their homes, their livelihoods, and their prosperity, and so he took it all away from them. And God will do the same to us today. God knows exactly what it is in your life that you prioritize more than him. God knows what it is in my life that is that temptation to put him aside and to serve and follow it instead. It may be a possession. It may be a job. It may be money. It may be a personal opinion. It may be a relationship. You can be a myriad of things, but whatever it is, God knows exactly what he must do, exactly what he must chip away at in our hearts and our lives in order for us to come back to him and serve him. And by his grace, God will do that in our lives to call us back to him. And so with the message delivered, the burden now lays on the people. God says, here, here, here it is. Here's what you've done. You've, you've made excuses. 
you've, you've disobeyed me, and, and here's what I've done. I've, I've disciplined you. I've, I've made your life difficult here, really, is what it is, because you haven't obeyed. And so now, so to speak, the ball's in their court. They have to do something with it. You know, sometimes you and I, we like to argue with God. We like to tell God, you know, God, I need a little more. I need a little more explanation. I need a little more comfort. I need a little more encouragement. But the truth is this. At sometimes, probably more times we like to admit, we don't need more. We need to obey. There comes a point in which you don't need to hear anything else. You just need to do something. Now, this is exactly the case that lay before the Jews. They don't need any more message. There's no more message they're going to get. God says, here's what you need to do. And so what's your response going to be? And so we see at the end of this chapter, this idea of getting back to action. In verse 12, we read of the obedient people. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the presence of the Lord. How many of you have spent some time in the prophets? You've read some of the prophets here in the Old Testament before. Okay? So what you read in verse 12 is common or uncommon for the people of Israel? That's pretty uncommon. It's kind of sad to say, right? The typical way this would go is the people would disobey God, God would send a prophet, and the people would what? They they wouldn't listen. They turn their nose up, they drown them out. Uh, Later, especially in the divided kingdoms in the northern kingdom of Israel, they would kill the prophets, right? But we read an amazing thing here in verse 12. The people listened to the message that God sent through Haggai. And how do we know? Because they began to obey. From the leadership on down, the people followed the Lord. And now, undoubtedly, God's judgment had softened their hearts and prepared the way of obedience. That's exactly what God's judgments were designed to do, by the way, to soften their hearts, to prepare them to obey. That's the purpose of all of God's chastening, to prod our hearts back to him. These were God's people, so God graciously denied them the ability to continue unchallenged in their sin. And so when we face difficulty and hardship because of sin, we also face a choice and a temptation. When you and I have have consequences in our life, when you and I feel the conviction of God in our life and we see what God has done in response to our sin and disciplined us, there are two ways we can go. Either one, we can go back to God, or two, we can harden our neck and continue on doing the wrong thing. How many of you have ever, maybe it's your own children, you've seen somebody else's children, they got in trouble and you saw that choice they could make, whether they're going to make it right or they continue on, and they made the wrong choice and they kept doing what was wrong. And they kept receiving more consequences and more consequences and more consequences. So you just shake your head like, what's going on? And we look back at our own lives and say, well, we do that to God sometimes. Israel certainly did this many times in, their own, in her own history. She would, instead of turning back to God, cling to that which had gotten her into the mess she was in. She would hold fast to some fading hope that this sin is going to fulfill me. And we do the same in our hearts. 
No, God works in our hearts. He convicts us. And we hang on for dear life that, that I really need this, God. It's really not that bad. And here's the end of the story. I'm going to tell you right now. It's not worth it. It's not going to bring you fulfillment. It's not worth being, quote, unquote, right. Because God is right. We need to obey him. And so what are the people fueled by in verse 12? Well, you get to the end of verse 12, and we see that their obedience is fueled by a proper attitude towards God. Where once there had been indifference and excuses, the people are now filled with a proper fear of the Lord. And when it talks here about the fear of the Lord, this is not a dread of punishment, but a proper reverence for God. Because a fear of dread and punishment leads to reluctant obedience, while a proper reverence leads to godly obedience. Fearing God is the pathway to properly obeying God. When we reverence God as we should... We obey him as we ought. If our fear, though, is motivated by, well, I don't want to upset this vengeful God. He might strike me with lightning. Then you and I, were going to obey out of compulsion, right? Well, I'll do it because, you know, I don't want God to hurt me. That's not really obedience, right? That's, we're being compelled to do something. But if we truly see God for who he is, the creator of all things, our redeemer, the one who calls us in love to himself, and we reverence him as he is, the holy God of gods, then I'll tell you what we're going to see. I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to give him the obedience that he is due out of a true heart. We'll then be in a proper relationship with him and carrying out the obedience that will come naturally to those who belong to him. Such is the case for the Israelites here in Jerusalem. They had been reawakened to who God is and what he expects of his people. So therefore they served him. They repented from their disobedience and engaged in his work. And here we see a beautiful thing. When God's people obey God and do his work, he he delights in that. And is present with them. We see God's empowerment as we close out this chapter. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. So the people had to hear hard truth about themselves and their conditions. They were faced with the fact that they had disobeyed God and therefore they were suffering the consequences of that disobedience. But notice this, that once they engage in obeying God, the message changes. Did you catch that? God now sends a message of reassurance and encouragement to his people through Haggai. He assures his people that he is with them. He says right there in verse 13, I am with you, says the Lord. He no longer acts against them. I mean, just, just, just a few verses earlier, we read what God was saying. I blew it away. I did this. I judged you for your sin. And now he's saying, I am with you. Totally different message. Why? Because the people have truly repented 
They're obeying God. He was there to guide them and empower them. And when we obey God, we too can know his presence in our lives. You know, sometimes we think, well, if God would only give me a sign, I would obey him. I'm here to tell you God's given you a sign. It's right here. He's told you exactly what you need to know. So obey him. Follow what he says. Read it. Know it. Let it change your life. God delights in our obedience and in our proper fear. The Lord, when we fear God as we should, that will cast out all other fear in our lives. And he empowers his own to live for him. And we see this here, that God is doing a mighty work in the hearts of the leadership and the general public in Jerusalem. It says that that he is stirring up the spirit of those people. What is he stirring them to? He's stirring them to further obedience, and he's empowering them to accomplish his ordained work. Now, the temple, the rebuilding of the temple is undoubtedly the work of God. It's exactly what he told them to do. And so God God is silently at work in his people, stirring them up to his service. And when we seek to obey God, God creates a desire for himself in our lives. And so we need to seek God's work in our own hearts and lives to will and to do, as Paul says, his good pleasure. And you'll find this, that the more you desire God, and the more of God you get, the more of God you'll want. That's what he does. He continues to create a desire for himself in us as we obey him. The people who had once made excuses for their disobedience, now come to the house of God to do the work he has called them to do. And we take note here at the end of this chapter that this work took place 23 days after Haggai's message. We say, well, you know, that, what, took some, what took them so long? Well, there's a couple of things here. Number one, the, the delay is accounted for probably because they needed to gather supplies and plant, right? They had to go out into the woods and, or the forest and all that and gather all the wood and bring it back. Number two, we also know there was a fig, a grape, and a pomegranate harvest that took place this time of year that probably had to be tended to. And this doesn't take away from the people's obedience and their readiness to work. And so having gathered what they needed to take and taken care of, their responsibilities, the people are now prepared to do what God had called them to do. The time for excuses was over. The time for obedience was now. The correct way to respond to God's conviction is through immediate, repentant obedience. The time to obey God is now. We in our lives, like the Israelites, can be very good at making excuses when we should be instead confessing our sin, repenting from our sin, and obeying the Lord. God has given his children the direction they need in his word. And he has given us his Holy Spirit to convict us of sin and call us to righteousness. I would ask the question, what more do we need? We have everything we need. God calls us to action for him. He calls for active engagement in his work. Now you and I, we don't read the book of Haggai and go, yep, we're supposed to go build a temple. Okay, I get that. God's not calling you to go build a temple. Because that was commanded to Israel, and that was vital to their covenant with God. But we are called, just as Israel was, to live for the glory of God. 
to turn from our sinful actions and attitudes and to embrace that which God says is right. So what is your response to God's work in your heart? Do we respond in in cowardly fear or in reverential awe that motivates us to heartfelt obedience? Because God will meet your obedience with his presence and empowerment that you may be used greatly for him. The time is now. Let us obey our God. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for letting us be here tonight to study it together. Thank you for um, the things you have recorded and, and kept for us to learn and know and see in how great and good you are. Lord, we ask that you would convict our hearts of disobedience. We ask that you would, when you, when we, when you do convict us of that, you, we pray that you would give us the grace to respond in such a way that is right. We wouldn't run from that conviction, but we would embrace it and lean into who you are and what you've done for us. We would truly repent from what is wrong and seek to do what is right. Help us to see, Lord, that that's truly the only way to live for you and your glory. That's truly the only way to joy in the life of a believer. For, Lord, if we would do these things, we'd be amazed at what a difference it would make not only in our lives, but in the lives of others around us. Help us now as we go out this week and we have opportunities to interact with other people, whether they be fellow believers, unbelievers, whether they be co-workers, family, friends, neighbors. Help us to give you the glory that you are due in our lives to hold you up as our great and awesome God. Be with us now as we depart in a few minutes. Watch over and protect us. In your name we pray. Amen.